Well, it is good to see everybody. Are you awake today? Good, good, good. My name is Dave, and if you're just joining us, uh, we are in the second week of a series called Deep Water Faith, and it is always fun for me to be back here at Timberlake Church to see the growth that's been happening, to reconnect. I kind of feel like a teaching pastor here, speaking about four or five times a year. And one of my favorite things to do is just catch up with Pastor Ben. As I've been mentoring and teaching and leading and coaching him over the years, I've seen a lot of growth. And so I am so moved by his progress. But we're doing this series called Deep Water Faith, talking about the deep, uh, often overlooked parts of Scripture, uh, some of the challenging and more mysterious parts of the Bible. Now, for me, I love the mysterious parts of the Bible because I just love mystery. When I was a kid, I enjoyed watching Scooby-Doo. Any other Scooby-Doo fans here? Yeah, it always ends the same, right? Old man withers from the amusement park getting caught, but it's always fun to watch. And then uh, as I got into middle school, high school, believe it or not, my favorite shows were America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. To this day, my favorite shows are uh, Dateline Mystery and 48 Hours. And so I'm just a big fan of when in real life, somebody's able to find a small piece of evidence and it is a big break for everybody. It's like, wow, they were able to solve the case. And of course, uh, there are some big mysteries that throughout the years have remained unsolved despite all of the progress we've made in the area of forensics. Some of you will remember in the early 80s, the Chicago Tylenol murder uh, case that happened. Seven people died as uh, different uh, Tylenol capsules were, were laced with cyanide. And even though they've had suspects, nobody's ever been charged. And then uh, some of you may remember in the late 60s, in the early 70s, in Northern California, uh, there was an individual who sent letter after letter, very cryptic letters to the authorities, and they would sign the letters Zodiac. And they came out with sketches from eyewitnesses who had seen the Zodiac killer, and uh, they, had, uh, they had put that out there for people to see, and I don't want to make light of it, but, nor do I want to start rumors, but there is a part of me that feels if you would add a lot of age and some sunglasses to that suspect, a good friend of mine, <laughs> a good friend of mine would be right up there. Right? And of course, over the years, there's been a lot of debate of the Shroud of Turin, the burial cloth of Jesus, uh, supposedly. And even again, with all our modern technology, nobody's been able to fully prove or disprove, even though there's been many, many different shows and studies on it. It's just, it is what it is. And then, of course, the age-old mystery of how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop roll. And so the world is full of mysteries. And one of the greatest mysteries that's been unfolding since the beginning of time is this mystery of who God is and what God is like. And we could argue that he has revealed himself to us in Jesus, and that is true. And yet, despite that, there's still a lot of angst and there's still a lot of debate over what God is like. And there's different ways that people view God. I'm going to talk about three of them today. Uh, for many people, their idea of God is that he is a cosmic killjoy who's obsessed with rules and regulations. And so they picture him like this fire marshal who wants you to make sure your life is up to code. And if it isn't up to code, he is going to fine you. All right? This is a God who's obsessed with the fine print. Do not kill, do not steal, do not read Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay? And the idea is this, that God 
is against us. That God is against us. Now, I know what this is like because I lived in a homeowner's association back in the day. All right, in San Diego, and you would know if you live in a homeowner's association, which I assume some of you do, that there are strict rules. But this one was a little bit over the top. Uh, One of the rules that they had in our association was that you are not allowed to park horizontally or at an angle in your driveway. You had to park, park perfectly vertically. The problem was our driveways were so short that a car wouldn't even fit on it. And so it was very common for people to park at a little bit of angle if they were running in for lunch or whatever. And so our association would regularly send a tow truck through to check up on people. And so I had a buddy over for lunch one day, and sure enough, come outside, his car had been towed. And so that just elevated my anxiety that I already have. And I decided to make it my life mission to ensure that that company never got another person in our community. And thankfully, the truck was loud. And so every time I would hear it, maybe two or three times a week coming through our community, I'd run out, get in my car, and just follow it. And when it would stop in front of someone's home, I'd go and I'd ring their doorbell three, four, five times. And I'd say, get out here. There's a tow truck about to take your vehicle. And so you can imagine, the driver hated me. But I didn't care because I hated him. All right? That's the idea some people have of God. And it's not that he's obsessed with towing our vehicles, but it's that he's obsessed with our behavior. And when we don't follow the rules, we have this idea that he gets mad at us. In fact, sometimes he gets so mad that he sends tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis to wake us up and teach us a really important lesson. That's certainly an option for how to view God, but there's another option that we can embrace when it comes to viewing God, and that is this idea that God is for us. Not that he's against us, but that he's actually for us. He's for my happiness. He's for my prosperity. He's for my health. He's for my success. He's for me. And when I get too obsessed with this way of thinking, my idea is that everything in life is about what happens to Dave. Because God is obviously for me. And so specifically, if something good happens, if there's a promotion, if I get a great deal on a house, if I go to sell a car and it sells like that, my whole reaction to that circumstance is God is good. And in some ways, we become like these musicians at an award show who get up and receive their award, and in their acceptance speech, they thank God for their hit song about some late-night booty call. Right? Because regardless of our ethics or regardless of our morals, we picture God constantly giving us a thumbs up like he's really, really happy with us and excited for us. And in defense, we point out verses like Romans 8.31 that ask the question, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Now, I'll just tell you straight up, it's easy to cherry pick verses from the Bible. And I could stand here today and quote verse after verse after verse that says God is for you because he is. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to bless you. He wants to prosper you. He wants to give you influence. God is for you. But if you look closely at any of those verses that talk about God loving you, caring for you, blessing you, you'll notice that there is an underlying theme that is very easy to miss. And it's that underlying theme that presents for us another view of God, and that is this. God is for God. God is for his glory. He's for his honor. 
He's for his recognition. Not in a narcissistic way, but in a glorious way. Because it is who he is. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of sacrifice. And so God's ultimate motivation for blessing you and providing for you, his ultimate motivation in caring for me and in bringing healing is to display his greatness to the world. See, we don't think about this much. When God saves us and he rescues us from the power of sin, he goes to work, chiseling away at our heart, chiseling away at our life and our attitude to make us more and more like Jesus. His goal is to free us from self-centered thinking. His goal is to free us from hatred and anger and a desire for revenge. His goal is for us to be free from the things that cause bitterness and anxiety inside of us. But according to Ephesians chapter 1, the reason God saves us, the reason he rescues us from the power of sin is for the glory of his grace. It's so that when people look at us, it's obvious that God is at work doing something inside of us. It's for his glory. And when I talk about the glory of God, I'm talking about the essence of who he is. I'm talking about the weight of his importance and the radiance of his splendor. Everything is for God and about God. It's for his honor. It's for his recognition. King David, who was the second king of Israel, kept a journal and would often record the thoughts that he had. And Psalm 23 is one of the more famous passages of his writings. Here's what he writes. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Now, at first glance, the introduction to Psalm 23 makes it seem like God is totally into us, right? He cares for me. He gives me rest. He renews my strength. He leads me along right paths, and all of that is true. But what's the motivation behind it? It's to bring honor to his name. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're told that God uses us, broken, flawed individuals. We know how broken and flawed we are. He uses us in our personalities, in our uh, different giftings, with the quirks that we have. He uses all of that to advance his kingdom. And the reason we're given is so that none of us can go around boasting about how great we are. In fact, the author goes on to say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told do everything for God's glory, including eating and drinking. It's all about him. In Revelation chapter 4, we're told that God created all things for his glory. Think about that. Everything in this world is intended to be a mirror that reflects the greatness and the majesty and the splendor of Almighty God. Now, a couple nights ago on uh, Friday evening, I could not sleep. Actually, Thursday evening, but then it got into Friday morning. So Friday morning at 3 a.m., I could not sleep. And so I just decided to get up, get showered, and get on the road. And I decided to hit up Olympic National Park. All right, never been there before, but I said, hey, I'm going to do this. And so I spent several hours there. Uh, went up to Hurricane Ridge. Actually saw a bear, which was pretty cool. I think it was intimidated by me because it never came close. All right, and so I uh, was there in all of the greatness of the park. And knowing what we were going to talk about, I could not get away from the fact that God created the world for his glory. 
He created the mountains and the trees and animals. He created the rivers. He created all of it for his glory. It's a theme that runs all throughout the scripture. Again, there are verses you can cherry pick here and there and make the Bible say whatever you want. You cannot cherry pick this theme because it weaves itself constantly in and out of the various writings and the manuscripts that make up our Bible. Everything that God created in this universe is a way of displaying his greatness to the world. Before King David became the second king of Israel, he was a shepherd, which means he spent a lot of time out in the fields. And he would look up into the skies, and he would look up into the heavens, and he would think about the greatness of God. Here's one of the reflections he writes as he looks up into the skies. He says this, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. David is saying, when I look up into the heavens and I see the greatness of God and his majesty, it is a proclamation to this world of how great God really is. The heavens are a reminder of how unique and how creative God is. It's a reminder of how big God is. And we know the universe is big. I don't think we totally have even a fraction of a clue how big it is, but we do know that the world is big. It's so big that many of our scientists and astronomers have come to the same conclusion that the great astronomer Carl Sagan came to when he said, if we're alone in this universe, it sure seems like an awful waste of space. Now, I got to tell you, I agree with his statement. If the primary purpose of the universe is you and I, but if the primary purpose of this universe is to display the greatness and the majesty and the love and the splendor of Almighty God, then it makes sense why it's so big. And it makes sense why it's constantly expanding. It's God's billboard. And it's out there for us day and night, reminding us of God's glory. Nobody owns it. Nobody rents it. Its primary purpose is to give honor to God. Now, again, it's impossible for us to wrap our mind around the vastness of the universe because we're living in just one galaxy of hundreds of billions of galaxies. You can go to HubbleSite.org, and there are pictures and more pictures and more pictures of all the great things that our telescopes have captured. Maybe you've seen some of them, the Sombrero Galaxy. That's a very fascinating galaxy or the pinwheel galaxy, or the spiral galaxy. There's a helix nebula called the eye of God. It gives you this idea that God is watching you. Now, this is just in the world we can see with our telescopes. But as technology continues to improve more and more, we continue to have more and more discoveries. And I'm confident that at some point, God is just stepping back and he's smiling. And he's saying, you haven't even come close to discovering how great I am. In fact, it was just a couple years ago, a 15-year-old boy in England discovered a new planet. 
And it took a couple years for scientists to confirm his findings. They did confirm it recently, but still, it doesn't have a name. So they identify it as WASP-142b. We have a picture, a rendition of what that planet looks like. Now, what's cool to me is if you zoom in on that planet, there's actually a little bit of signs of life on there. It's pretty cool, okay? <laughs> now, when I look at those pictures, it's easy for me to echo the opening words of Psalm chapter 8 when David wrote, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we're told that God is not just the mastermind behind all of creation. He is the creator. And it didn't take a whole lot of effort for Almighty God to create those things we see in our world. As a matter of fact, it was effortless for him. He just spoke it into being. Genesis chapter 1 says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, you would not want to be standing in front of God when he said, let there be light. Because light travels at 186,000 miles a second. That's faster than some of you back up out of the driveway in the mornings. All right, that's fast. 186,000 miles a second, and God just spoke it into being. Light is fast. And, of course, our main source of light is the sun. And it's crazy to think that the sun is just one of hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. And it's just hanging in the universe. 93 million miles away, displaying the greatness and the creativity and the splendor of God. Now the fact it's 93 million miles away doesn't impress us much, but let me tell you, it's important. Because if it was 93,000 miles away, SPF 50 wouldn't help you all that much. If it was 193 million miles away, colder than a mother-in-law's kiss, we would not be here. And so it's right where God wants it, and it sits there. It's so bright that if Puget Sound Energy was in charge of running it, it would take the sum total of all of our wealth as a nation, our gross national product, for 7 million years to run the sun for one second. Massive energy producing light, and God just spoke it into being. He is big. He's so big that the authors of scriptures didn't even know how to describe him. There's hundreds of names that are used for God throughout the writings of the ancient manuscripts as authors were trying to zero in and determine who is this God. He's called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Rapha, our physician and our healer. In other words, this idea that we have of God is probably a little too small. right? If you, my guess is you're like me, and you have this idea of God that he's just a bigger version of you. right? That God kind of likes the things I like, and he's against the things that I'm against. I'm kind, but he's kinder. I care about people, but he's more caring. I'm compassionate, but he's more compassionate. Nope. God is not a supersized image of you and I. He's in a whole different category. In fact, Isaiah chapter uh, 40, we read some questions written by the prophet Isaiah to try to get us to understand the greatness of God. Here are some of the questions Isaiah asks. He asks, who else has held the oceans in his hand? 
Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Those are sobering questions. Who else has held the oceans in their hands? Just in case you haven't thought about this recently, that's 326 million trillion gallons of water. The next time your kids complain about bringing you a cup of water, you just remind them of that. God holds it in his hand. Who's measured the heavens with his fingers? We can't understand this, right? We have to measure the heavens with something we call light years. 5.88 trillion miles. That's how we have to measure, and Isaiah says it's just the breath of his hand. This universe is so big, we, we can't measure it with yardsticks. These tape measures that we get from Home Depot, right, that we're so proud of. Check this out. Right? Oh, it's so big. We can't even begin to measure what God does with the breath of his hand. We have to use light ears. Then Isaiah asks some other sobering questions. He asks, who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? The implication is nobody. When God determined to create the universe, where did he go to learn how to do it? Did he pull up a Google search and say, oh, thank you. I'm going to watch this YouTube video? No. And later on, he writes questions from the perspective of God. And here it is. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. And then he follows up those thoughts, questions by saying, look up into the heavens. Who created the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. When you go outside tonight and you look up in the skies, it is a reminder of the greatness of God. And you should be able to see a lot of stars. But I want to remind you that regardless of whether you're looking through a telescope or with your naked eye, you're only seeing a fraction of the stars there's a hundred billion plus stars in our galaxy alone. And yet Isaiah says God has given each of them a name. And every single one of them are communicating this truth that God is big. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is bigger than you and I can picture. He is greater than you and I can imagine. Let's talk just for a moment about our galaxy. right? The Milky Way galaxy. It's so big that it takes 100,000 light years for light to move from one side of the Milky Way to the other. That means you turn on a light switch. 100,000 years for light to get from one side of the other. Now, I am not a big fan of all these formulas and scientific numbers and stuff. I get lost pretty, pretty quickly. But every so often, there is an analogy that smart people will come up with to help us understand how big these things are. And uh, NASA and scientists have put out on their various sites that if our solar system were the size of a quarter, that means on this quarter you put the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. If our solar system were the size of a quarter, the Milky Way galaxy would be the size of the United States. That's us, that's our solar system. 
The United States is our galaxy, and we're just one of hundreds of billions of galaxies. And I thought it was cool because I have a friend who owns a 10,000 square foot house. Whoa. Now let me show you another picture. This was taken from Apollo 17. When people first saw this, it was one of those moments where they just stepped back. So fascinating. It's the first time that anybody had seen that kind of picture of our planet. And they just stepped back and were amazed. What's interesting to me is I look at this picture as much as you can see of our planet, there are some significant things missing, things that we would say are big and gigantic, things like skyscrapers and cities and really big homes, big mountains. In fact, we see a little bit of Africa on here, Mount Kilimanjaro, the largest mountain in Africa is not able to be seen from that picture. You don't see cars or houses or people or Donald Trump's ego, what you see is earth just hanging there. In Psalm 24, we read these words, the earth is the Lord's in everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Translation, every animal, every mountain, every human, every idea, every concept, it all belongs to God. He is the creator of it all. And although we look at our planet and when we have to drive from one side of our nation to the other or one side of the state of Washington to another, it feels like, oh, it's taking forever. Relatively speaking, we're not that big. In fact, NASA has a robot called the Curiosity Rover. And a few years ago, it actually took a picture of Earth from Mars. There it is. Whoa. You look at a picture like that and you say, that's just what we look like from Mars. It makes us feel insignificant. It's almost like, why would God care about us? Why would God care about my problems? Why would God care about my issues and my struggles? Well, Isaiah, as he's asking all these questions, knows our emotional response, and so he addresses it with these words. How can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? How can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard, have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. As insignificant as you and I may feel, God says you are not significant, insignificant. Why? Because you are my creation. And I've created you for my glory. I've created you for my glory. I've given you gifts and talents and passions and abilities. And my intention in doing so is that you would be a mirror that reflects my greatness to the world so that when they look at you and the work I'm doing in you, it would be obvious there's something more powerful at work behind this person. Isaiah 43, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. You and I are a reflection of his greatness. Just think about, not the complexity of the world, think about for a moment the complexity of the human body. 
We're made up of 75 trillion cells. Each one of those cells has 3 billion letters of DNA coding. Every single day, we lose 50 to 150 strands of hair. Some of you have lost more. We shed 10 billion flakes of skin every day. Every 28 days, our skin is completely renewed. Every nine years, our body is completely new. And yet in this shedding, in this dying, in this renewing, it's like every cell knows where to go. Every flake knows where to go. Every atom knows where to go. And God says, it's because I made you for my glory. I've given you a personality so that you can reflect me. I've given you passion and talents so that you can reflect me. I've allowed you to go through different circumstances in your life so that you can reflect me through those circumstances, through the good and through what we would consider bad. It's all for me. It's all for my glory. God is for God. That's why we read in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. And we've got to wrap this up. But I want to reiterate this thought one more time, and I want you to see how deep this thought and concept of God's glory goes. I'm going to bring up here a topic that's so random, you probably never thought about it, but I want you to understand how deep this idea of God's glory goes. In AD 70, the Roman empire was large and in charge and the roman army came into jerusalem and just annihilated the city they just left it in chaos emperor titus uh, was leading the army at the time and so they just went in took things destroyed things and as a result the jewish people left and they were scattered around the known world at that time as far as they were concerned their world was over they no longer had a nation even by that point that nation was gone now they were scattered among the world they thought it was done and it should have been. 100 years later, they're still dispersed. 200 years later, 300 years later, 400 years later, still dispersed, still gone. Five, six, 700 years later. Empires, great empires were coming and going. Roman Empire, Syrian Empire. All these empires coming and going, and this small little tiny nation was still, called Israel, was still off the map. But there was a prophet by the name of Ezekiel who 2,500 years ago writes, wrote some pretty powerful, straightforward words about this situation that told the people of Israel, there's going to be a time period where you're scattered around the world, but I want you to know I'm going to bring you back together again. I want to read some of those words. We're not going to put them up on the screens. I just want you to hear them. Here's, here's what the prophet says. He says, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you have brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before the very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am God. Well, of course, in my grandparents' generation, 1948, Israel became a state again. A couple years ago, the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, reflected on Israel becoming a state after it had been a desolate, it hadn't been a nation for a couple thousand years and people had been scattered all over the world and he references the words of the prophet Ezekiel and he specifically mentions this 37th chapter which is this really bizarre picture of dry bones coming together and flesh coming on them and if you've ever seen videos or pictures of the Holocaust it really is reflective of what that vision seemed to represent but 
Here's the words of Ezekiel 37. Again, I want you to see how deep this theme goes. Son of man, talking to Ezekiel, these bones represent the people of Israel. These bones coming together and flesh coming on them. They're saying we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished because it represents the nation of Israel. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When that happens, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your land. I, the Lord, have spoken. For thousands of years, we dismissed it. We thought it was no big deal. That's how important the glory of God is to him. I will display my greatness through creation. I will display it through humans. I will display it through creativity. I will display it through Bible prophecy because I want the world to know about my greatness. Everything that happens is for his glory. And we can either look and say, well, that's a narcissistic way of thinking, or we can say this is the most freeing thing in the world because it means it's not about me. It means I don't have to worry about building some great empire because my money ultimately is not about me. My parenting is ultimately not about me. I don't have to live and die based on how my children act or how successful they are. My time ultimately, as crammed as it is, it really isn't about me. Everything that I have, everything that's been given to me is ultimately a way to somehow reflect and mirror the greatness of God to this world. 